years. Uh, I don't remember um, my exact age, and it's sort of beside the point, but uh, I, didn't, um, I didn't live with my mom, and I would just go uh, visit her in the summer uh, with my sisters, and so uh, whenever we would go out there, you know, she didn't have, like, all of the normal stuff that we would have at our own house, and so one summer, um, we were staying out uh, with her in California, and uh, she got a bike, and uh, it wasn't any bike, and it would be more expensive to buy bikes for, for all the kids, so we got a, um, a tandem bicycle, okay, at a garage sale, and what you're looking at right now is a Rolls Royce compared to the rusty bucket of bolts that we bought, and, um, and uh, so, so the tandem bicycle was uh, supposed to be, you know, so we, we could all be around on bikes because obviously you don't want to walk anywhere. Now what you need to understand about tandem bicycles is uh, you never want to be in seat number two. Okay? And uh, if you've never ridden one, it's, it's so off-putting because um, when you learn to ride a bike, you figure out how to balance your own weight and shift it accordingly when something's going poorly. But you now have an additional person, and you have a human being. Uh, that you're also trying to figure out how they balance their weight, and, and it's just so weird and awkward. And these are here, the second set of handlebars are only there as a luxury. They are psychological warfare. They don't move at all. They don't do anything with the steering. The only person in control is the person in the front. So I was, uh, I'm the youngest, and so my sister, of course, was always in the front. And, uh, and so I was always in the second seat, and so um, she, uh, oh, oh, I forgot to mention, because this was garage sale tandem bike, um, the brakes were not great. And so uh, the, cra the, the, the stopping strategy was just um, driving to the grass and we bumped him over and kind uh, of And um, so <laughs> the tandem bicycle. Um, the, uh, the second seat was, was dreaded. And uh, what you can see here is like there's no, there's no real good view of what's going on. You just have to trust the person in front of you is navigating with some kind of uh, you know, sense. And they're going to the same destination that you want to go to. And, um, and so you can participate, you can pedal, you can supply power and kind of, um, you know, help along the ride. But for the most part, the, the person that's actually in control is the person in the front. And, uh, and um, this, this bears a lot, of, uh, a lot of metaphor in our life, a lot of analogy. Um, because I think generally when we, when we think about what it is to, uh, to follow God, we tend to believe that. Um, we can either swap seats, we can be in the front seat sometimes, but when God really needs to help us out or show us the way, we're not really sure, we'll jump into the back seat, and then, and then there's sort of an exchange going on, but that's not actually the reality for anyone. It's, you're always in the second seat. The question is whether or not you're enjoying the ride. Okay? The question is, is whether or not you are enjoying the destination, you're along, you're participating, you're, you're happy, or are you terrified? Are you constantly working against the actual destination, the person's actually in control? Because that's what will happen is, if you want to turn left and they're going right, you can move this all you want, or you try to move it, but that, that sucker's fixed. And it's not going to do anything, and you can lean the wrong way, and you can crash, but in, in general, once you get back on the bike and the person in front is mad, right, you're going to have to go back the same way. And so here's the, the, the sense of our lives is that when things are going as we, as we try to control or plan them, then uh, we think we're following, we think we're following God's plan pretty well, and then we, we kind of crash and we we think, well, maybe I need to get in the back seat. And, and the reality is that what we're meeting with is that we were never in the front seat. Yeah. And uh, I, I tried to make this point a, a little bit. I didn't really hammer it, but um, 
the, the reality that God is in control, and I'll use the word sovereignty because it's an important word, um, is, is, uh, it, it fights against everything in our selfish, independent natures. We are people that love control. We love safety. We, we, we want to know that we are sort of masters of our own destiny. And um, we, we want to know that until we, we hit something and we bump our knee and then we blame God. So it's kind of interesting that we want it both ways. But um, the, the reality under all of this is that uh, God is in control. And um, we also tend to look at what happens in Scripture, and um, especially in, in Acts. And we've, we've talked about this dynamic a little bit before. And we'll, we'll kind of read something like a miracle happening or healing or, or even today, their response to persecution, their response to opposition. And we think, well, that's that's radical, you know? That's, that person's really committed. Or, let me give you a more, a more feet-on-the-ground example. Um, Micah and Melissa are missionaries in Indonesia, and they were serving in our church for two or three years, however long. It felt like ten, guys. <laughs> I'll be watching this later. Um, so, so we look at Micah and Melissa, and they leave their culture, they leave their home, they leave their stuff, they take their small child, and they go to a distant country to spread the name of Jesus. And we go, well, they're committed, but that's not for me. They're like, like they're an extra degree of varsity Christian, and I'm just like, you know, I'll ride the bench Christian. And uh, we're, we're making false distinctions, because there's, those distinctions don't exist in the way. We're, we're trying to create a scale. And the reason why we say things like that, or believe things like that, is because it creates a safe distance from us of the obligation to actually live like God commands us to live, and like we should live if God's actually in control, and like we actually belong to Him. So, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a reality that's born out in the response to persecution that should be in our own lives, instead of pushing it to the responsibility of other people who are more committed than us. And um, the, the response of a, of a, of a Holy Spirit-filled, God-loving, submitted church is one of courage and reliance on God's power and His Word and His will to overcome all opposition. So with that being said, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get to the text this morning, and uh, see what the Lord would have for us together. God, I pray uh, as we open your word, that um, we would first come uh, humbly, uh, knowing that uh, our, our minds are not enough to understand you, and that our ways are far below yours, and so when we meet things that or things that um, are hard, may we um, have the kind of humility to, to submit to what's true and say that uh, it's yours to define. God, I pray that we would um, be a people this morning filled with hope and courage because you have saved us and you can and will overcome all things. So, Father, may we um, face the world in opposition and all things knowing confidence that you give us, God, I pray that you would help us by your spirit this morning to understand all that we hear. I pray that you keep my lips from any air, and uh, just whatever I have to say, I'll go away, and whatever you would have to speak this morning, may it come clearly through. God, we love you. I ask that you give us hearts, minds, ears, and eyes to know you and learn from you this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Acts chapter 4, and uh, we're picking it up, and in case you forgot, um, where we've been, right, there, John and Peter go to the temple, they heal the lame, the 
causes much uproar, uh, causes a, a scene because they begin preaching uh, about um, the, the name of Jesus being the way that the man was healed. They're seized by uh, the religious leaders and the political leaders. They are imprisoned overnight. They are then questioned and uh, they land on this firm resolution that uh, uh, it is their duty to, to speak and to, to live in a way that accords with what they've seen and heard. So they're going to not obey the command uh, that they've been given by man to not speak or preach in the name of Christ anymore. Um, and they are going to obey God and continue to teach. So here it is, uh, beginning in verse uh, 23. Okay. It says, when they were released, so they had been released from the question. When they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand with signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So there's a, a couple pieces here. The first is the response. What happens after the... Uh, Opposition, the persecution, the very soft rumblings of persecution, more to come, as it will increase and get worse. And then we have the prayer proper and the theology thereof, and then God's response to this prayer and the earth shaking and all these things. And so um, we see here just overall that when the church meets opposition, um, what their response is, is going to establish uh, the framework for all, all response in the future. Now, um, there's not a long a long history. Now, there's no long history already before them to go, well, this is what the church has always done. So, so the first time they meet um, authority, commanding them to do something other than what they have the conviction to do, there's, there's truly a, a question, what ought we to do? Well, they've already resolved this by declaring, whether it's right to obey God or man, you be the judge, but we're going to, to continue to preach this way. And so, um, where the lines are drawn um, is important for us, because if you caught it when uh, he said it in the video that I showed you beforehand, if you're, you're not going to endure persecution, you're not going to endure opposition, you're not going to continue down a path of difficulty and hardship if you don't truly believe something. So when you truly do believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that the gospel is true, and, um, and this is the core conviction in your life, then you're willing to endure whatever God or man sets before you for this for this truth, and so um, this is established now um, for the church as as the reality that holding fast to what is true is going to lead us into all kinds of difficulties. But we have to we have to stand by what we know to be 
absolute, what we know to be um, God's Word. And so, um, C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity has a line, you've probably heard it before, but it, it serves as a great, um, you know, sort of framework to understand uh, what's happening in the church and what we should think about when we meet opposition. So Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Have you heard this? Yeah. Jesus, he's got to be one of these three things. He's either sovereign Lord of all, he's in control, he's absolutely who he claims that he is, he's a liar, he, he knows he's not God, um, he's not who he said he was, but he still professed it anyway, or he was just crazy, right? So he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic, and however, it, whichever one of these three is the reality, ought to, ought to bear out. And, um, and so uh, we think of, uh, you know, sort of the idea that if we continue down paths of opposition, that it's, you have to be like a special kind of stupid to do that. But it, it's not true. It's, you have to be a special kind of convicted to do that. You have to be a special kind of um, committed to the truth, to continue even in spite, when, when, when all of the signs are pointing to, this is going to hurt, do you continue down that path? And the reality is that we're not just uh, invited to, but commanded to. Why? Because um, through, through opposition is, is the opportunity. For God both to prove himself unfaithful, for him to show the gospel is true, and to put to shame those who gather together and think they're in control. So here's, here's, here's what's happening in this picture. So look in uh, uh, verse 23 with me and see what happens. This is when they were released, they went to their friends. And friends is sort of a, it's, it's an unfortunate translation of this word. It says it's in the Greek, their own. And, and the word their own there is actually predominantly used to talk about their family, like families. So when you say like your kinsmen, right? So it says they go back to, interestingly, their, their families, or what they would consider as their family. And this draws a further distinction between um, what I, I tried to introduce to you last week, but there's really, there's only two kinds of people. There's only two lines. There's the children of promise, and there's the children of the, the serpent, the children of the devil. And um, so that when they were released from the temple and the place where there was the religious leaders, they go back to these people they called their own. Or their friends. And they reported to what the chief priests and the elders had, uh, had said to them, or rather what they had commanded to them. And so, um, just because I, I want to make the point really clear. Romans, Romans 9 says sort of a summation of what I, I tried to lay out as the, the two frameworks, or the two, the two distinct peoples last week. So, Paul's making the argument here, well, so it's are all Jews saved, or how will, how will the Jews be saved? So then he makes this argument stating it like this. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So not all people by the flesh that are born from Abraham's line are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. That means those that are literally born uh, of that genealogy, of that line, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted. As his offspring. So those who are spiritually included are the people that are counted as Abraham's offspring. And so um, there is not a question of whether or not we seek people that are like us. Or at times of difficulty or trouble or opposition, you're going to look for some kind of help. Like, you, you need a people. Very few people, even, even people that believe they are introverted and they, they'd rather be alone don't want to be alone when times are hard. And we will always see somebody to share our burdens or celebrate 
our gift of use. And so the question isn't, do we do this, but who do we do this with? Where do you go, and who do you go to to share your sorrows or celebrate your victories? And what's proposed here is that the people that constituate the church, the, 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 the members of the body, your new family, are the people that you ought to go to and share with. And the distinctiveness of that group um, being not just people that align with you in, um, you, you can run with different groups at different times because, you know, they, they share a common interest. But this is not the, the picture that's being painted here. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a wholly separate and distinct group of people that um, share because of its, its deepest and foundational nature everything about you that you should be most committed to them. And um, the problem I think that uh, we have today is one is we think, well, being committed in that way to a church is radical. <laughs> Why would I do that? That seems hard. Uh, that's a lot to ask of somebody. That's overly, you know, overbearing. I just want to live my life. I want to go to church so that God knows that I care, but I don't want to do anything else. Like, that's a lot to ask of me. I'm trying to live my life with people. <laughs> and this is the mentality that we take. And, um, and so because of, as a reaction to this, to sort of soften um, the call to be committed and belong to a different people, we, we sort of um, flattened out the reality of the distinctiveness of this group being different than the world, being a different kind of people. And um, when Jesus was sort of talking about the, the problem of um, just being like the world, he, he uses salt to compare it. Salt and light. He said, well, what good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? If, you, if you're not a, a truly distinct people, if you just kind of look like the world so that people in the world are comfortable coming into the church and the people in the church are comfortable being in the world, you, you've lost the distinctive nature of what the church is. And the first thing to go is generally, generally the, the gate, the, the way, the truth, and the life, the way in. It's, it's compromising something about the, the restrictiveness and the... Um, singularity of entering through Christ and the way that um, he demands that we do it. So um, when you see this standing on the, that truth begin to be softened and, and go away, so too does the church. And then it's just a social club where we get together and we talk about, you know, things that may or may not interest you, but you feel like you should do it. And that's, uh, that's a sad, sad um, squashing of what the church is, is actually shown to be in Scripture and what it's supposed to be. And so uh, the, the church has found that it's easier to uh, move through the world when the world likes you. Right? That's, that's just the, the generalism for, for life. And um, we're, we're not supposed to look for the path of least resistance. We're supposed to just walk the path we're given. And, and so unfortunately the, the church has tended to compromise on these things. And, and we sort of like walk with, well, we have an understanding. And um, whether that's politically or morally or any of these things. And, and so instead of being this pillar of truth and truly salt and truly light, um, we kind of mix it all together and hope that the right people will figure it out. And um, so this is just my, you know, soapbox for the morning, I guess. Um, we, we, we can't uh, be guilty of, of doing that uh, or we lose the whole thing. There is no like, spectrum there. It's like interrupt. And so um, so they, they go back to their own because these are the people 
support them. And, and the people that support them, the people that they call their own, are not people who, who sort of commiserate with them. And that's the kind of people um, that uh, we, can, we can be guilty of seeking people out that just go, yeah, that's hard, I'm so sorry. But not people that go, you know what, that's hard, but you've got to keep going because that's the right way. And instead of current, we, we, we tend to surround ourselves with people who will commiserate and, and, and let us sit down in a heap in the road when it's hard instead of picking us back up and shoving us down the road a little bit further. And that's what the church is meant to do, and that's exactly what happens in this passage. When they heard it, that is verse 24, when they, the people that they go back to, heard it, they all lifted their voices together and they said, Sovereign Lord. So the word um, is uh, translated together is going to become important. It means they're of one mind. I don't know if this happened like a, uh, you know, some sort of musical where somehow everybody knew the right words at the right moment and they actually prayed in unison. But the fact is, they, they start by quoting Psalm 2, this, the psalm that I had everybody read um, at, at uh, the beginning of our worship this morning. And so because it's a, it's a familiar um, idea to them, because it was already part of Scripture, and because they were already all Jews, um, they're able to at least respond to what they see in the world with what God has already said. And this is the very definition of what a biblical worldview is. It's when you start to interpret the things that you go through, the, the circumstances that you see, the problems that are happening, and you, you filter that through the lens, and then you be able to respond and say, this is what God said. This is exactly what's happening in His Word, and you respond to it accordingly. That's what a biblical worldview is. And so they do respond with an interesting start. They say, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. And um, that's, that's sort of a, a it's, it's like the same word, but it's not the same word, because this is, um, that, that word sovereign here in front of that um, is an important distinction. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I missed my actual definition here. The sovereign Lord, uh, he says, is this word um, despotis, right? Which we, we use the English word a despot is a kind of ruler that rules with like an iron fist, right? Somebody that has absolute and total control. And this is what now they are, um, they're, they're ascribing to God. And um, they're uniting under this reality. They're saying that God is truly in control. He truly is sovereign over all the things that we experience, including and especially the difficulties that we experience. And that's, uh, that's going to be an important distinction because as they begin to quote the psalm and then they kind of trail off the psalm and begin to talk about um, the reality that uh, the opposition against Christ and the crucifixion was all part of God's plan. That's, uh, that all has to come under the understanding that, that God truly is uh, sovereign. And this is the source of, of their unity. They're, they're not um, united under, you know, you know, we, 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 we support the same social causes or we like, you know, Peter's preaching or something like that. Um, they're, they're united on the reality that, that God is um, the sovereign Lord over everything. And then um, unity is a key and unmistakable feature of the Holy Spirit in the church. It is functionally living out the greatest, the greatest commandment. Okay? So we see here that they're united and lift in one voice, declaring that, that God is... Um, Lord of all. And uh, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit more, but the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God, right? With everything, right? Love God with everything, and love your neighbors. Love your neighbors, okay? So unity under the reality that uh, 
that God is supreme. Uh, I give Him everything I am, everything that I have, and that other people around me are um, are more important than me. I will, I've sacrificed who I am and what I do for the betterment of other people. That is the Holy Spirit wrought fruit in the church. It's an unmistakable feature. And so when you see churches that are disjointed, they, they lack unity, they, it's because, not because they God didn't give the Holy Spirit, because they're not being filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're not walking out, and the, and the fruit of the Spirit is not being produced in them. And so, um, there is no here, in, in when we meet opposition, and you're already fractured, that just makes things worse. And um, if I just... It's not soapbox, it's just more commentary. Like socially, churches that are not unified under under the real truth, under um, these two these two realities and, and the gospel, as they meet opposition, will fracture. And they're going to go one of two ways. Either they'll close, they'll go away, they won't exist anymore, or they'll just look like the world. Because you, you can't have, a house divided against itself won't stand. Right? And so, the, if, there's, if there's already... Um, disunity within a church, if you've had a generation or more, long time, a couple hundred years of um, ease in America. But when it does come, it roots out where the weaknesses are, and who's really committed and who isn't, and who's rooted in the truth and who is not. And so, um, James says it like this in James chapter 4. He asks the question, what causes fights among you? Talk about the church. What is it that, that causes these problems in the church? And then he answers it. Well, is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder and you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel, and you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that? What's that say? Do you not know that when salt has lost its flavor, it's useless? Do you not know that by lowering the standards and pursuing yourself and reducing the commandments to nothing, that friendship with the world is enmity with God, and you lose the distinction of what the church is? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? It is because the Holy Spirit is the stewarding place, and you individually are the temple, and collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he hears jealously, that means he cares about the morality of the church, he cares about the fact that we do or do not have unity under him. And so James says, look, when, when you're pursuing your own ends, and you're not really, um, you know, submitted and filled with the Holy Spirit, then these are the kinds of things that you see, and we see it all the time. And so it's, it's not like really a mystery of why these, these things happen when they occur. So, unity is found around this declaration, that God, you are in charge. You are sovereign Lord. So Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And if he's Lord, then that means something. So Jesus, to challenge people, why do you call me Lord, but do not do what I say? So if you say, Jesus, you are in control, and you're in charge, and you're worthy of my obedience, but then you don't obey me, then it's just a word that means nothing. Just like, well, yeah, God's sovereign. But if sovereign doesn't mean what God means by sovereign, and what is truly meant by sovereign, then it's just a word. And it doesn't actually, it's not actually true. And uh, you won't live accordingly. Now, before I get to the, the prayer proper, he says, in, uh, they say in verse 25, 
And God, you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in the 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, which um, you don't need 2 Timothy 3.16 to prove that the, the Bible is God's word and that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's just included that through the mouth of the, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So there you have man filled with the Holy Spirit speaking the word of God, and they're going to quote it now. So why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot of And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. That's Jesus. For truly, in this city, so now they transition to Jerusalem. In this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So like everybody in the pool, and they all got together, and what did they say about the fact that they got together? In verse 25, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do they do something useless? They do it because they think they're in power. They do it because they think they're in the front seat of the tandem bicycle. So they did, with the full intention of bringing about their ends. But look what happens. So all these people got together. All the sources of power, all of the, the big wigs, they, they, they planned this great thing. But what did they do in verse 28? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So whoever thinks that they're in control finds eventually the end of their control and the end of their power, and they find the beginning of wisdom, which is that God is in charge. And that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the more you fear the Lord, the more wise you are, right? Yeah? Amen? <laughs> so, you cannot um, you cannot function well, without trusting in God's sovereignty. And rather than it being something to rail against, it's something to find security in. Um, I think Spurgeon said that uh, sovereignty is like the pillow that he rests his head on. Mm -hmm. um, I think I do have a quote from, um, is this it? Yes. This is from um, A.W. Pink. And, uh, he wrote a whole book on the sovereignty of God. So listen to this. There's nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all works of his own hands. The throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. It is upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne whom we trust. If God is not sovereign, in all times, in all ways, that he's not sovereign at all. You, you know, theologians and pastors and armchair YouTube guys have for years <laughs> tried to somehow get God out of this moral bind they think he's in by being in charge. But if he's not in charge all the time, then he's not in charge ever. Because you, you do a greater injustice to the goodness of God by making him only in charge over important things. <clears throat> Do you see? Well, he's, he only intervenes when he needed Jesus to be, regardless of all the events that lead up to that. Nor would you say with any confidence that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That, 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 that scripture, that, that statement has no power and no um, encouragement if God's not truly able to and is not truly working all things 
for his purposes and for our good. That we love him. And um, I, I, this does not eliminate hard questions from our heart about the things that we experience and suffering, but it's not meant to. It's meant to get purpose in those things. And, and trusting God's sovereignty over those things is important. Um, I don't want to spend forever on this, but do you guys know who Johnny Erickson College is? Yes. So she, if you don't know, was um, uh, a swimmer, and uh, she, had do she dove in a pool when she was very young, I forget the age, and uh, she fractured her spine, and she's been in a wheelchair for now some 50 years, I believe, plus now. But um, she said that the question she gets asked the most, right, is why would God do that? God's good. He's it's always about, why would God allow this to happen? And she said, it's the best thing that's ever happened to her. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so if you root underneath that, why would somebody say something like that? Why would they, wouldn't they rather be a swimmer? Or wouldn't they rather be able to move and so on and so forth? And it's like, because she knows that without that in her life, she would have never been um, pushed to God. And so she, she says, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Mm -hmm. God, God will allow what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Did God want to see his son crucified on the cross? No. So that the greatest evil ever perpetrated at the hands of men upon God himself brought about the greatest good that could have ever come to men from God himself. And that is the essence of sovereignty. That God ordains and allows what he hates to bring about a greater purpose of what he loves. Mm -hmm. And we see that played out. They say, look, all these people got together, they thought they were in charge. And they, they rallied against God's ordained king, and he, he puts them against the, the rulers here, Herod and Pontius Pilate. They thought they were in charge, but they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29, the Lord looked upon their threats and granted your servants safety. And, and please let us never have any problems ever again. Bless this food to our bodies. Their response is not, God save us. God, God, we're so scared. This could go poorly. These guys are actually, they have, you know, they have some power here. It says, look upon their threats and grant to us the courage to speak with all boldness. Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer? I don't, I don't think you have. I don't pray those kinds of prayers. Everything up to that point where they turned to what Jesus had done had been a quotation of Psalm 2. And then they, they moved to give us boldness. That's their response to opposition. Not, not, not save us from heartache and, and make the, the hard things easier. And, you know, I wouldn't mind a promotion. And, right? And um, this essence of this prayer is God, give us what's required to do what glorifies you. God will always provide what He demands. He will always provide what He demands. He will give you whatever is required to walk in a situation. Um, and that's that's important that we, we go back to seeking that. I, when we first did prayer, and I said, I'm not going to do the, you should pray more, and you go, yeah, I should pray more, and then we talk about that. I said, the foundation of prayer is essentially this. It's a, it's a submission to the, the will of another, right? It is, God, I'm dependent upon you which is effectively what Jesus has always prayed. Obedience. Not my will, but yours be done. He's, he's, he's modeling this for us. And if that's the essence of prayer, what goes beyond that is then for us to model that same thing in our lives, 
where we go, yes, because God is sovereign, because he's Lord over all, he commands all these situations, God, help me to walk in wherever it is that you lead in a in, in given situation, but do so in a way that, that glorifies you. Um, Tandem bike, man. I just, I, this, this kept coming to me as, a, as an example of, of who we are, not just uh, in our lives, but like especially in prayer. And um, we, we think that at the moment where we're not sure about something or we, we want something, that we can just we jump in the back seat. But if, if you start with the reality that God's in control, God is sovereign, He's in the front seat, then it changes how you ride in the back seat. It changes what you're doing along the way. And listen, like, he's, he's going to take you up some hills that are a tough climb, but, but he knows the way, right? And, and if you're railing against that, and you're, you're constantly, you know, trying to bail off the back of the bike, or you're, you're leaning the wrong way, trying to go, things get harder than they ought to be, but you cannot change or thwart the path. This is what it means to live in line with the truth that God is sovereign. It's, it's recognizing this and then asking, well, what, what, what are you going to do then to align your reality with this truth? So, um, when we recognize that God is in control, when we recognize that He's sovereign and that He um, He doesn't always give us like uh, safety in the sense of nothing bad will ever come to us. God's response to prayer is not insulation from the world. Safety as we need it, and now we have to pray for it. But it's often provision promise and preservation through circumstances. So God, as, as we go, as, as we meet opposition, you're going you're gonna to perform signs and miracles that are going to give us opportunities to speak the name of your holy servant. Look at uh, 29. After they ask for boldness, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant, this is what they ask for. As we continue to do what you call us to do, and we walk in it, we just we just ask that you give us the courage to do that. And um, there's what's implied in that statement is that you must do that, but ask for the courage to do it. What's implied is that you, this is this is the appropriate way to go. This is the appropriate thing to do. But God, help us when we we don't have enough because we never have enough. But we need the courage to to walk through um, the hard places with boldness. And uh, we, we tend to try to squeak through the hard places with meekness, just to hopefully, you know, what they say, get out of hell before the devil knows you're there. Right? Uh, I don't know how many of you guys watched this movie, uh, The Finest Hours, but uh, it's based on a true story. And uh, it's a story of uh, the Coast Guard uh, taking, it was a, 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 a bad storm. February of 1952, one of the worst storms ever to hit New England uh, comes in. It uh, it damaged two oil tankers. Same same storm broke it right in half. And uh, so there's a ship that uh, has survivors out there in the water. And um, and so this little lifeboat uh, against the odds sort of sets out against uh, they say 70 foot seas, and they have to cross over um, this this sandbar to get to um, out into the, the, the deep water where this. Uh, where this oil tanker had gone in. And so um, the point isn't necessarily um, the bravery, although that's amazing in itself. They, they face um, all of the difficulties, but this lifeboat that uh, they take out was only made for 12 people. 
Uh, and there's four Coast Guard members that are already on there. So you can do some math here and recognize that how, how much room do they have for the survivors? Well, mm -hmm. there's over 30 survivors still uh, at this oil tanker. So they trawl it long, they finally get out there, and uh, as, as they're there, they, they do end up rescuing all but one person off of the, uh, the tanker. And, uh, and actually, he made it down onto the lifeboat, um, but he, he slipped and he actually got crushed as he fell in. But um, that's, that's neither here nor there, because the reality is this, that um, Bernie, who's sort of the, the main uh, Coast Guard um, captain, says uh, at, at one point when they begin to rescue, they say, look, there's not enough room on the boat. There's, there's, uh, there's only room for like you know, 12 guys in here, right? But he says, it's all of us or none of us. So they, they begin to save more and more people, and as they get each new survivor on the boat, and that person now becomes part of the rescue squad to get more and more survivors mm -hmm. on the boat. And they end up getting finally back to safety. Yeah. Guys, it's a great movie, and it's a true story, and it's, so you should watch it. But um, here's, here's the reality of what happens. We are like these sailors needing desperate rescue, and the lifeboat comes, and we get saved. And what we do is we lay down on the lifeboat and cling to our life vest and desperately pray for God to come save us. Mm -hmm. Save me. You are saved. The storm might still be going on, but there's other people that need the courage of you to go and move forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's, what makes it worse is that sometimes... Even now, we're not in the midst of 70-foot seas and torrential rains and so on and so forth and freezing temperatures. It's like we're on a cruise ship, desperately clinging to our life vest. Lord, save me. Give me protection. God, help me to... And these are the content of our prayers. Can I just give you like a holy kick in the butt to say, <laughs> stop it? God has called us to be a courageous people because he is a powerful God. Because we are called to be his hands and feet and because he doesn't need us, but he uses us. And you are the means. So it's all of us or none of us. And if you take that mentality instead of, well, I'm here, I hope everybody else will make it. This is a fundamentally different idea. You check with that. Yes. It's all of us or none of us. Instead of praying for God, you know, bless us food to our bodies or something like that. Maybe you can pray for a situation that you need courage for, but then actually walk in courage in that situation. You would see things differently. And you find a little more danger in your life, but in a good way. Kind of like significant gospel good danger. Well, that's what I have for you this morning. This is the response. Oh, I know I have one more thing. Because they answered, the, the prayers answered. I apologize. So look at what they say then. Uh, God, you're going to stretch out your hand and heal. And it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. I need to admit, I'm going to make one distinction and then talk about the <coughs> answer. Um, don't, don't confuse um, the gift of the Holy Spirit being given and being filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit constantly. We've already seen Peter filled with the Holy Spirit several times. You should seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a continual asking. And you're going to see that come into um, significant play at the beginning of chapter 5. Because in distinction to being filled with the Holy Spirit, we have Satan filling somebody's heart. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question of what, what are you filling yourself with. 
And so there's all kinds of ways to do that, and we need to talk about that. But notice that um, all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the result of that is that what? They continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. So the, the just being filled with the Spirit is not the end of itself. So, you know, when you have some charismatic Pentecostal service, and here we are all filled with the Spirit, but what's the result of was, was the word of God gone forth and did it once declared boldly and, and so on and so forth? So, so there ought to be an end to it, not just that in and of itself. But then just rewind just a second because I don't want to pass it, but it just says that the place that they were gathered was shaken. And uh, so we kind of look at that and we're like, man, what a powerful prayer. And, um, and so we go, like, what is that? What is the, what should we see in the reality that God shakes the place over there? Well, this is a word. It's the same word, it's actually when it says there in the temple and the Holy Spirit comes with a great wind and it shakes, and this is what initially draws the crowd in, uh, on Pentecost. And so whether or not it's, a, it's an earthquake or a violent wind that shakes stuff, when the ground shakes, who gets shaken? Everybody. Thank you. Isn't that interesting that we think when, we, when God answers our prayers, it affects everybody else, but I'm the Holy One that doesn't get touched. God's answer is to shake the ground so that those who are not grounded in what's true fall. And I think there's, there's significant um, reality to this. Now, whether or not this is an earthquake, and it says the place that they're gathered. I don't know if that's a temple, a house, or an earthquake in general, but uh, it's, it's recorded that in Jerusalem, after like, Jesus is um, resurrected at Pentecost, there's earthquakes that are happening constantly. And I think there's something to be said about the reality that God shakes a whole place, a whole place that everybody experiences equally, and only those that um, would be, you know, sort of um, not included in seeing that it's God's answer to prayer are the people that are left with it being a disaster in their lives. So I, I just wanted um, to see, when you just recognize that sometimes God's answer to prayer is to bring calamity, but that if you're rooted in Him, if you're rooted in His truth, then it's calamity for everybody else, but it's advancement for you. And whether or not he... I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this in a way that doesn't come out wrong, but I don't know how else to say it. Like, if you die in the process of serving God, that's not a punishment. It's not a bad thing. Um, and we're still, again, I go back to where there were people that are desperately obsessed with safety and control. And submitting your life to what's true, which is that God is in control, and if I can say it, but stealing the words, God, use me or kill me. If you, if you had that as a truth in your life, how different would it be? 